Hey everybody, welcome to the 57th episode of our World News Podcast. This episode, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash analyze educate, or you could support us on Ko-Fi as well at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. With that being said, we'll head into the news. All right, before we get started off here, just a quick note, you guys have helped us reach over 19,000 downloads and 1,300 followers on Spotify, so thank you for that. Looking at Europe and the United Kingdom, Minister of Defense Ben Wallace resigned over the week and has been replaced by Grant Shapps, Member of Parliament for Wellman Hatfield. Shapps has confirmed that one of his priorities will continue to be British military aid to Ukraine. Looking at the South Caucasus, same story again, the blockade of the Lachkin Corridor has continued and it has been going on for over eight months at this point, about eight and a half months, shows no sign of ending, really no uh, real updates from that area though. Looking at Russia on September 1st, Russia officially placed a new ballistic missile on combat duty according to uh, Yuri Borisov, who is the Director General of Roscosmos, that is Russia's space agency. That missile is the RS-28 Sarmat Super Heavy Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. It is sometimes referred to as the Satan II by Western media outlets. The Sarmat was introduced by President Vladimir Putin in 2018. It will replace the R-26M Vovoda ICBM, which has the NATO reporting name SS-28 Satan. In theory, the Sarmat can carry 10 to 15 nuclear warheads to anywhere around the world. That's pretty much all we have on that. Looking at the war on the 29th, the Ukrainian drone attack destroyed and damaged four Russian strategic aircraft. This attack struck Peskov International Airport in Peskov Oblast that is near the border with Estonia. The airport is home to two military transport aviation regiments. The attack came in the middle of the night, and we now know that the drones were launched by pro-Ukrainian forces deep inside Russia. That is according to Major General Krylo Budanov, who is the head of Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Directorate. And the reason I say pro-Ukrainian is we don't know if they were actually actual Ukrainian forces or Russian partisans. We, we just have no idea. After reviewing drone footage from the attack, it appears that smaller drones were used to drop bomblets on the aircraft instead of larger long-range drones like uh, suicide drones. This attack comes 10 days after another Ukrainian attack on the Soltsky-2 air base that is in Novgorod Oblast that is also near the border with Estonia. That attack destroyed at least one Tu-22M3 backfire that is a strategic bomber, and that led Russia to increase patrols and force protection around the base. Maybe I should say allegedly, because this attack in Peskov Oblast shows that the force protection is still lacking. Reports claim that as many as 20 drones attacked the base, but that has not yet been verified. Satellite images show three IL-76 Kandon strategic airlifters and one IL-78 Midas air refueler. The Candid is the backbone of Russia's military transport and aviation responsible for the transport of supplies and troops, such as the Russian Airborne, 
The Midas is a strategic asset as well that keeps Russian aircraft in the air longer while on combat missions. While this attack will have little impact on the war, it will have an impact on Russian military aviation, and it also shows that Ukraine's reach inside of Russia is not to be underestimated. Looking at the Indo-Pacific region, Vietnam on the 29th, a Vietnamese fishing vessel from Quang Nai province came under attack from the water cannon of a Chinese Coast Guard vessel. That vessel was numbered 4201. Uh, that was northwest of the Paracel Islands. The fishing vessel was traveling from Woody Island to Observation Bank to look for their catch at around 5 o'clock in the morning when the Chinese ship approached them and opened up with its water cannon. The Chinese ship followed the fishing vessel for 10 additional hours, continuing to spread in intervals. Two fishermen were injured, one of whom suffered a broken arm, and the ship was damaged to the point where it actually would have sunk were it not for a water pump on board. The Paracel Islands are a grouping of about 130 small coral islands and reefs in the South China Sea. They are claimed by both China and Vietnam. However, China has effectively controlled them since 1974 and established a military presence on multiple islands, the bigger islands in the chain. Taiwan also claims the island chain as well. We reported on a similar incident in mid-August between the Chinese Coast Guard and a Filipino vessel that was trying to supply military personnel on a remote island. So this is uh, seems to be a theme in the South China Sea for sure. All right, taking a look at Central Asia and the Middle East. First, starting off with Syria, fighting has broken out in eastern Syria between the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, and local Arab tribesmen. These clashes in Derizor are some of the worst between the SDF and local tribes in years. Fighting began on Monday, the 28th, when the SDF detained several members of the Derizor Military Council. That is an Arab militia that falls into the Kurdish-dominated SDF. Fighting has taken place in multiple villages in the region, including uh, Fajay and Briha. The council's leader, who is named Ahmad al-Khabel, was detained for alleged involvement in drug trafficking and other crimes and violations. These clashes were also caused in part by underlying ethnic tensions between Arabs and Kurds. Some Arabs in the area feel that Kurds are gaining too much power in the area that of course, has to do with the uh, Syrian civil war and the fight to uh, eradicate ISIS in the region. The total number of deaths in this round of fighting is unknown, but civilians are among them, multiple civilians. Fighting has spread to Aleppo as well in northwest Syria, with Arab tribes taking advantage of the situation to seize two villages from Syrian government control. And uh, we also now know that the Turkish-backed Free Syrian Army is taking advantage of the situation as well to seize villages from the control of the, again, Kurdish-dominated SDF in uh, in eastern Syria as well. Uh, we do know that these attacks in Aleppo from Arab tribes were later pushed back by Russian airstrikes. That's pretty much all we know about the situation right now, but fighting is still ongoing. Um, also, as far as the situation goes, uh, Iranian-backed militias are taking advantage of this as well to conduct assassinations and propaganda campaigns in SDF-held territory. These efforts can undermine U.S. attempts to calm the situation between its allies in the fight against ISIS. Iran is also using its proxies to deploy rockets along the Euphrates River in Deir Zor. Syrian opposition media claims that they intend to strike U.S. forces in the area and blame the attacks on Arab tribes. 
certainly uh, would not be out of the question for Iranian proxies. So if you're in that area by some chance, it's something to be on the lookout for, for sure. Moving on to Uzbekistan, the country's president, that is Shavkat Mirziyoyev, announced some new appointments to his cabinet. Uh, first off, we have Komil Alamjonov, who is in charge of the Department of Information Policies. But the notable appointment, though, is his 38-year-old daughter, that is Saida uh, Mirziyoyeva, as the head of his presidential administration. This comes after the previous head of the administration, that is Sardar Umar Zakov was fired. This makes Mirzi Yova and Alam Jonov the second and third most powerful people in the administration, respectively. The president was elected to a third term in July. The constitution only allowed two terms, but an amendment was passed in April to allow a third. Uh, Mirzi Yoav has talked about paving a new way for Uzbekistan before, but this appointment signals that he's more like other Central Asia leaders than he likes to lead on. We will take a quick break and we'll be back with Africa. All right, and we're back with Africa. This is probably the big story of the week looking at Gabon on the 29th, just two hours after President Ali Bongo was re-elected to serve a third term in office, military leaders seized control of the country and annulled the election results and dissolved the country's institutions. This, this is the second military coup in Africa in over a month and the seventh in three years. However, this should not be compared to the coup in Niger, which we have covered before. In Niger, President Bazoum was the new president that came to power in the first peaceful transition of power in the nation since gaining independence from France in 1960. Uh, President Bongo in Gabon, however, has served for 14 years. And he took over from his father, Omar Bongo, who was president from 1967 to 2009 when he died. That means that the Bongo family has been at the top for 56 years. Gabon is far from a bastion of democracy. After the coup, people took to the streets to celebrate and take photos with soldiers to thank them, but military officers are not necessarily heroes here either. These men are the ones that kept the Bongo family in power for almost six decades and engaged with them in corruption for just as long. The men that led this coup and now control the country are not good men by any stretch of the imagination, so just keep that in mind. Some facts about Gabon, courtesy of Cassis Belly, who we had in the podcast before, I suggest taking a look at that episode. It produces mainly oil and minerals, which is exploited by China, Russia, and other countries. Gabon is also an OPEC member. Also, it's a former French colony and currently has 380-ish French troops currently stationed in it. The new junta has announced that it will respect all international commitments that have already been signed. That's interesting. They are also starting to go after Bongo's associates. Uh, security forces raided the home of Bongo's right-hand man, that is Maitre Park, otherwise known as the Korean, and found 70 billion West African francs, that is about 115,000 U.S. dollars in his home. Uh, they also arrested the president's son, that is Noreddin Valentin Bongo, for pie treason, and 4 billion francs were found in the home of his chief of staff, uh, Ian Ghislaine. Also, the African Union has suspended Gabon from all of its institutions, 
As far as ECOWAS goes, I wouldn't expect any action from them. Gabon was not a member of the community. And as I said, the coups with Niger and Gabon should not be compared at all. Um, moving on to Cameroon, but still related, less than 24 hours after the coup in Gabon, President Paul Bia of Cameroon ordered a complete reshuffle of the army's high-level positions. This is according to Cassis Belly. African analysts have suspected for a while that Cameroon may be next up for military coups in the region. President Bia himself has been in power since 1982, so something to keep an eye on. And then moving on to Rwanda, but also related as well, just after Cameroon did this, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda forcibly retired 12 general officers of the military. This includes several senior generals, such as uh, General James Kabarabi, who was Kagame's senior advisor of security affairs. Now, moving on to Niger, looking at that situation as well, of course, the recent military coup, that's what we're talking about. That situation is very tense still. The the economic community of West African states, otherwise known as ECOWAS, and I did mention before, maintains that it will militarily intervene in Niger if the military junta does not restore President Mohamed Bazoum to power. Negotiations between the two sides to end the dispute peacefully continue, but really haven't made any progress at all. We recently just released an episode on the situation that I think is probably the most detailed breakdown of the Niger coup that you will find in podcast form. If you haven't given that a listen already, go ahead and do so. That is with Cassis Belly uh, that I was just talking about. Now, a quick update on that situation. Algeria, in an attempt to peacefully resolve the situation, has requested the release of Bazoum and suggested a six-month transition of power from military to civilian rule. Obviously, that's not going to happen. I, if I was a betting man, wouldn't put money on that. Uh, despite being ordered to leave the country, France's ambassador is still not done so. We spoke about that in the last episode. France says that it does not recognize the authority of the military junta. The junta has ordered the police to expel the ambassador, and they have revoked his diplomatic immunity and credentials. However, again, he still remains in the country, so it's not clear what's going to happen with that. Also, Burkina Faso has approved the deployment of a military contingent to Niger. This is officially being done to assist Niger with counterterrorism, but in reality, the purpose is to deter an ECOWAS military operation that we have talked about before. Moving on to Sudan, fighting between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces continues. The war has so far forced 4.8 million people from their homes. One million of those have fled to other countries. Additionally, between four and 10,000 people have been killed as well. A joint force of multiple neutral rebel militias has arrived in the south of Darfur city of Niala to provide security to civilians and aid groups that remain trapped in the city. Fighting between the two sides in Niala has left all roads leading out of the city blocked. On the 29th, shelling between the two sides in the city killed at least 40 civilians. 30 people were killed when a missile struck a bridge that they were hiding under. And another incident, uh, six others were killed at a funeral. On the 27th, fighting erupted between the SAF and the El Hilo faction of the rebel group SPLM-N in Delami and Kadugi. Multiple casualties were reported, but the exact number is unknown. Uh, this is a continuing trend that we're seeing is rebel factions that had before signed ceasefire agreements with the government are now openly waging war against them, taking advantage of the situation. And on the 31st, the RSF was expelled from the city of El Obeid by the uh, Sudanese armed forces, but the fighting left at least 14 civilians dead 
and another injured in the mountainous areas northwest of the city of Umdersman. The RSF claims that it attacked a base belonging to the Armed Forces Special Task Force, killing hundreds of soldiers in the process. That claim is very difficult to confirm, so take that with a big grain of salt. Moving on to the Americas Bulletin from the Borderlands released on September 1st. Uh, the Americas desk covered the Central American Parliament expelling Taiwan. Also, uh, the shooting of a man across the border in Mexico by a Texas National Guard soldier that was covered as well. And then an ISIS-linked smuggling network was taken down by the FBI. So take a look at all of that. That is on the Lethal Minds Journal Looking at Ecuador, a large-scale search for weapons and other contraband in multiple prisons led to 57 prison guards and police officers being held hostage in at least six different prisons in Ecuador. They were held for a day before all 57 were released, but the government did not offer any details of their release. Ecuadorian prisons are incredibly dangerous and are controlled by criminal groups, as we have covered before. Since 2021, at least 400 inmates have died in Ecuadorian prisons. In the 48 hours after the initial incident, four car bombs and three IEDs went off across the country in an apparent retaliation against Ecuador's prison authority for the contraband searches. Thankfully, nobody was injured in those attacks. Looking at Nicaragua on Thursday, China and Nicaragua signed a wide-ranging free trade agreement, FTA. The deal focuses on the trade of goods and services as well as opening Nicaragua's market for investing. This includes online personal data protection, an electronic transaction framework, and digital economic cooperation. Nicaragua broke off diplomatic ties with Taiwan and established them with China in 2021. The two countries began negotiating the FTA in 2022, and now an FTA between China and Honduras uh, might be next after President Sayamara Castro of Honduras signaled as much during her recent trip to Beijing. So that's something we'll be looking out for, of course. Moving on to Mexico, 400 Mexican Special Forces personnel were deployed to Ciudad Juarez on the 29th to carry out security operations. Juarez has been plagued with violence like many other cities in Mexico. This deployment on the 29th follows a similar deployment of 200 soldiers from the Mexican army to the city to take part in Operation Juarez 2023. It also comes as 1,200 soldiers from the army and the National Guard were deployed to Tierra Caliente, the region of Michoacan, last week to combat a surge of targeted attacks on security forces and businesses. And moving on to the United States, of course, we have a presidential race update. Looking at the polls, these are all averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 41. That is the same from last week. His disapproval is at 55%. That is down 1%. I'm sorry, that is actually up 1%. Looking at Trump's favorability, it is at 40%. That remains the same from last week. His unfavorability is at 57 That is up 1% as well. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 64%. That is down 1% from last week. RFK Jr. is at 13 That is up 1%. And then lastly, looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 50%. That is actually down by 2%. We saw the same thing the last week. That is interesting. DeSantis is at 15%. He is up by one. And Vivek Ramaswamy is at 9%. He is down 1% from last week. We got a quick update on the uh, 
Trump Georgia case, the judge has confirmed that the proceedings will be live streamed and televised. It's really all we have right now, but we'll be updating you guys as they become available, of course. On the 30th, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, froze up again after being asked if he would run for re-election this This pause lasted for 30 seconds before members of his staff had the press move on to another question. McConnell was later cleared for duty by the Senate physician who believes that he may have been dehydrated or still recovering from a concussion he suffered in March. McConnell has had a similar episode back in July. You've probably all seen a video of that, and he is 81 years old. Moving on, quick update. If you have served in the evacuation of Hamid Karzai International Airport in Afghanistan two years ago, and you were part of the 24th MU, the SP MAGTAF Central Command, or the 82nd Airborne Division, you now rate the presidential unit citation. So get with your commands to run up your awards if that applies to you. And then we have a Hunter Biden update, of course, new documents from the National Archives and Records Administration, otherwise known as NARA, detail over 1,000 emails from 2011 to 2013 that were sent between Joe Biden's office when he was vice president and Rosemont Seneca Partners, which was the investment firm of Hunter Biden and other business partners such as Devon Archer. The emails included White House guest lists, seating assignments, and biographies for various official events such as the state dinners for the United Kingdom in 2012, Turkey in 2013, and France in 2014. Other emails included a forwarded invitation that was originally sent to VP Biden to attend an event at the UCLA Burkle Center for International Relations and an invitation for the then second lady, Jill Biden, to attend a World Food Program event. Another 2013 email shows lobbyist Doug Davenport begging Hunter Biden's business partner, Eric Schwerwin, for tickets on short notice to the White House Christmas tour, which Indicates Rosemont Seneca's level of access to the White House because he was able to get them those tickets. NARA released these emails to America First Legal, which is a conservative law group founded by former Trump advisor Stephen Miller. Additionally, the Biden White House ordered NARA to withhold over 200 emails between the VP's office and Rosemont Seneca asserting executive privilege. So it doesn't look like America First Legal will be getting those documents. Moving on, the U.S. of Virgin Islands is currently suing J.P. Morgan Chase in the federal court in Manhattan on the allegations that they aided Jeffrey Epstein's human trafficking network by facilitating related transactions. Lawyer for the Virgin Islands, Mimi Liu, claims that from 1998 to 2013, J.P. Morgan facilitated over $1 billion worth of transactions from Epstein that were related to human trafficking. Part of the evidence Liu offered was an official notification made by J.P. Morgan to the Treasury Department flagging those $1 billion plus in transactions on the belief that they were related to human trafficking. Despite those transactions happening from 1998 to 2013, the notification to the Treasury Department wasn't made until after Epstein died in 2019. Lou made sure to highlight a specific block of $9 million worth of transactions, uh, withdrawals and payments to multiple women that she alleges facilitated more than 20,000 illicit sexual acts. In the hearing, Lou said that, quote, J.P. Morgan was a full-service bank for Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking, end quote. She continued by saying, quote, the only reason that J.P. Morgan, after 16 years, reported the $1 billion in suspicious transactions was because he was arrested 
and then he was dead. This was a CYA cover your ass reporting after 16 years of all the monies flowing in his JP Morgan accounts after he was dead, end quote. Lou also pointed out that JP Morgan continued to do business with Epstein even after his guilty plea to a sex crime in Florida in 2008. The Virgin Islands is seeking at least $190 million in damages from the bank. In July, the bank settled in a similar case with the victims of Epstein in Manhattan. That settlement was $290 million. And that's all I have for you guys. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. You could also find us on Telegram at Analyze and Educate. Please consider supporting us again at patreon.com slash Analyze Educate or at Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze and educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. And I will see you guys soon.